Once again, y'all, y'all give it up for Mimi and the Brain Babies. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, my podcast is called Mimi and the Brain. Um, please give it up. Please, just as loud as you can. This is an amazing space. These are amazing people. They've done a lot of work. There are stickers on these water bottles, okay? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, love it. So this is Mimi and the Brain, and I'm your hostess with the mostest brain damage, Mimi Hayes. Um, and I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this is a podcasting competition, and I'm super competitive, so we're going to do this. Okay. So if you are a first-time listener, which I think uh, most of you are um, right now, congrats. It's your first listen. Yeah. So uh, welcome to the Brain Party. Uh, Mimi and the Brain is a podcast. It's a neuroscience comedy podcast. And I bring a special guest onto my stage now that I have a stage. This is my stage now. I have a carpet and I have stickers on my water bottles. Um, I bring on a special guest to help me talk about the brain, but not just the brain, also my brain, because as of a couple years ago, it got a little crazy in my brain. And I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger for that one. Uh, hit the music, Mike. Oh, window, found it, crawling in. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Tell us about yourself. A tiny clump of cells in my cerebellum have ruptured. That doesn't make sense. What? Yeah, I know. Nothing is real. <laughs> this is Westworld. We're all robots. Great. I want the truth! Guys, let's get this podcast started. What a theme song, dear lord! <laughs> All right, so folks, for this episode of Mimi and the Brain, I have a very special guest today. Um, she's a senior manager at for the education programs at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute, where she produces public programs about science. She is a science communicator with several solo shows and also the senior producer of The Story Collider, a monthly science storytelling showcase at Caveat in NYC. She is also a neuroscientist. Pretty cool that you didn't know you're going to meet one of those today. She's an adjunct professor at Mount Sinai, and she recently took home the Society for Neuroscience Science Educator Award. Folks, please put your hands goddamn together for Paula Croxon! Doctor, doctor, doctor Paula. She's a pretty doctor. Ooh, are we on? On switch. Yes. I, I have a PhD, yo. Oh my. <laughs> I can work a microphone. It's all good. It's tell all them, good. tell them. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Hi. Paula came down all the way from uh, down from Harlem. Where's Harlem? I don't know. Harlem? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's in Manhattan. Yes, it's kind okay. of far up. It's nice. Yes, yeah, she nice. Tra she traveled here. Please give it up for her. <laughs> so, Paula, I want to start today with a little meat cute, uh, and I want that to be our meat cute. Oh. Can you tell the good people um, 
the day we met. Tell them about what happened, how it went down. I can. I can. I remember it well. Uh, so I was doing uh, a sort of one-woman show about memory uh, at Caveat, which is in the Lower East Side. It's a very cool venue uh, where they wrote me in to shows that uh, they want to try out because I... I guess, always say yes to things. And so I was doing this show where I was paired up with a, a theater stage director. And, um, and we did like a one-hour theater show about memory. Um, and, then, and part of it had this audience interactive part where I needed a volunteer. And so I sort of wandered out into the audience and I asked for a volunteer. Uh, and Mimi here put her hand up and said, I'll, I'll volunteer. Um, I'm really interested in the brain because I have a brain injury. And I said, oh, cool. And then I was like, oh, um, neuroscientist. Um, uh, no, I'm, I mean, it's not cool that you have a brain injury, but it's really cool that you're here. And, and, and she was like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And, and so after that, we became friends. <laughs> so my first question for you, um, aside from that, God, I was so excited to see you. I was like, I had such a girl crush on you. I was just like, <laughs> look at her fucking lab coat. Look at that. Um, so you produced the Story Collider, and it's a monthly show, and I actually got to be on it uh, in December. It's a monthly showcase. Um, can you tell us uh, how that's going? What is, it, what is it like to work with scientists on a stage? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a thing. It's, uh, so the Story Collider is a monthly stage show. Uh, we're in a bunch of cities across the US, Canada, New Zealand, and the UK. Uh, and we also have a podcast. Um, so a lot of the stories that, w that we have on our stage show make it onto the podcast. Um, and some of those stories, and the, the stories are all true personal stories about science. Um, and some of the stories are from scientists, um, and they're about their experiences in science. Um, and some of them are from people, from, from regular people, uh, who I like to call people. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, they, and they can involve science in any way, because science is everywhere. It's all around us. You know, it's in, it's in our phones and our computers and the lights around us and the medical issues that we face. And, uh, and then the scientists that people date who are not always good to date. Uh, because we're all obsessed with our work, um, and so and so, um, I do this monthly job, which is really a delight, uh, where I get to work with people. But the people who are usually hardest to work with are the scientists because they don't want to be there uh, telling. Why is, why is that? So, so we're told to be uh, objective as scientists uh, and to and to use data uh, and to not feature ourselves. In the, science, in the science at all, because that would mean that we're somehow influencing it, which is weird because people do science, and without people doing it, there would be, science doesn't do itself. Robots? Uh, science, is one science done by robots? Is that I mean, how it, I mean, one day it will be, I'm sure, but right now, no, it's done by people who behave as if they are robots. Um, and so, <laughs> and who say things like, uh, well, the data speak for themselves, um, or I can't possibly be emotional, I'm British, and now you can tell I'm talking about myself. And, and so I, I was one of those scientists a long time ago, and the first time I told a true personal story live on stage, I did not want to. I didn't want to be there, and, and I wasn't happy about it. Um, and, and I told a story about my grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease, um, 
and what an asshole I was about that um, because I was a teenager and I didn't know what was happening and I didn't understand it. And it wasn't until years later when I started working on memory disorders that I understood what was happening. And I was able to forgive myself for that. And until I told that story and people talked to me after the show and they thanked me for telling that side of the story where, you know, I talked about my own bad behavior and, and how much I how much I struggled with it, um, that I realized that they cared a lot less about my data and a lot more about, about my experience and how so many of the people in the audience saw themselves in that because everybody knows somebody who has Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Um, and it changed my life. Um, after that, I just wanted to be involved with that in any way that I could and to help people tell their stories on stage um, in a way that, that not, not only helps the person telling the story, but also helps the people listening to the story hear something for themselves. Yeah, and that kind of goes into my second question. So it's almost like you saw these ahead of time. Um, Goodness, imagine <laughs> that. Um, but I was going to ask you, you know, why is it so important for you personally to communicate science through storytelling? Because that's a concept that I feel like is kind of blowing up right now with like SciComm and like communicating science because it's important, but a lot of people didn't used to think that and it used to be kind of inaccessible and cold. And, you know, when did you kind of start to mix those two things together and why is that so important? Did it start with that show? Was that the first time you felt like you should combine them? You said you didn't really want to do it at the time, you know? I, did, I really didn't. Um, and, and yeah, so, and I think, I think uh, when I tell people that I'm a storyteller, a lot of times I think I do work with kids, and, and I do do work with kids, but this isn't about kids. Storytelling is as old as time. We, we've been telling stories around campfires long before we had written language, um, and in some ways, uh, it's the ultimate way to communicate. Um, and I think that scientists have been missing out by not using storytelling to convey what we do, because what we do is, is involved in our lives. <laughs> so, uh, so um, and, and because I study memory, I also know that what happens in our brains when we're listening to somebody else tell a story is all of the areas of the brain that are, that are, that are working together in synchrony when you're listening to a story they're completely overlapping with the areas of the brain that we use to remember our own past experiences. And those are the same areas that we use to imagine our own future ones. So there's something about storytelling that allows us to have empathy. And I think science has been missing empathy for a very long time. And, and you know, speaking of International Women's Year, what is it? When, how long does it last? Like a long time, forever, I think. Forever, forever. <laughs> Forever and ever, eon, international women's eon. Um, you know, I mean, science hasn't been a friendly place for women and for people who are who are in, in a minority in science, which is which is such a waste and such a shame um, that that it hasn't been a hospitable place. And partly that's because I think we have been turning down the empathy and and turning up. The privilege, and and so I feel that my place in the in the world can be to somewhat try and and help redress that balance a little bit. Yes, Queen. <laughs> oh my God, yes, I I agree with that actually because like 
as a podcaster who like just learned how to be a podcaster like very recently and is podcasting about science, which I'm not a scientist, I'm sure that you, that's not shocking. Um, I, I, it's important for me to feel like I'm a part of this thing that I can claim that identity and that's empowering. And like if someone else sees that or hears that and it makes them feel like they want to explore something that that's like all it's about, you know? Yeah. 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 We have to talk about things and, and, and even the difficult things. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that. So um, when you're not helping goofballs like me get on stages and talk about science, um, one thing that you research you mentioned is memory in the brain. Uh, so first of all, what is memory exactly? Like, what does it look like in the brain? You know, is it like an electric signal? Is it like a lost neuron, like trying to find its way back home? It's been out too late. Is it like a lever? <laughs> That you pull. Uh, can you give us some kind of like visual? I'm a very visual person. Can you give us some kind of visual representation of what memory looks like when you're remembering something in the brain? So the so the super disappointing answer is we don't really know. Um, <laughs> so so lots of theories have been put out there over time about how memory might look and how it might be represented in the brain. And for a long time, we thought that maybe there was just one area that was responsible for memory. Um, and that was chiefly because of a, of a patient um, who I think is quite famous by now, whose, whose name was Henry Malazan, and he had epilepsy. And, and HM. HM, that's right. Um, and he, he had a surgery to, to treat his epilepsy where they, where they figured out where they thought the epilepsy was starting, which is in the temporal lobes of his brain, right in his temples. And they, and they took out, the surgeon took out those areas of his brain. And what they didn't know is that that would, that that would destroy his memory, his ability to create new memories. Um, and the main area that they took out that was the cause of the problem was this area called the hippocampus, which is pretty deep in the brain. Um, and it has a really complex structure, and that's why it's really prone to seizures, probably. Um, and so they thought that was it. That was the area that was responsible for memory, and all they had to do was leave that intact in future, and, and, and it would be fine. And it turns out to be a lot more complicated than that. There were a lot of brain regions involved. Um, and years and years and years of studies have shown us that, that memory is probably distributed across a lot of brain regions. So the best, when I think about how one single memory is formed, I sort of think about if, if the neurons in the brain that form that memory could light up, then it would kind of just look like the night sky in a really clear sky, just with constellations of neurons that are able to communicate with each other, maybe not directly, and that makes memory really vulnerable because you could take out just a little bit of that and maybe the whole memory would be unraveled. Um, and it also makes, makes memory really um, kind of amazing and difficult to form in the first place. Um, and so it's incredible to me that we even have such rich memories as we do. I'm picturing like uh, Christmas tree lights, you know, and how like if one of them is out you gotta rip the whole thing down sometimes and figure out which one is like, you know. Yeah, I hate those, those ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hi, yes. Oh, oh, can, uh, we have a section for that. Towards the end, can you save it for a little bit? Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I, t I want you to ask questions and I'm sure you will have lots and lots of them. So I'm gonna, you know, keep rolling. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, we respect that. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> item five. Um, <laughs> this girl has control of her own podcast. <laughs> we like it. My memory is not so great, Paula. Uh, you know this about me, but my audience might not. Uh, in 2014, I had a pretty serious brain hemorrhage. And actually, kind of like our girl Khaleesi, not sure if you read New York Mag uh, the other day, um, just like that. Um, and it was, it was really crazy because I lost a lot of things about myself that eventually came back, but in kind of really weird, nuanced ways. And I lost mobility and half my body and I couldn't see and it was very strange and I've always had a really bad memory I've always been that friend that I tell you a story 15 times and I will tell you 15,000 more times because I will not remember that I told you that story and you will tell me every time that I've told you it and I will keep going because I just can't hang on to that so you know my question is what kind of research has been done about the brain and memory in response to things like legions or hemorrhages and, and the response to what's going on there. So firstly, I think that thing about telling the same story 15,000 times is totally normal. At least I hope it is, because I do that too, a lot. Um, and, and having a bad memory is kind of normal as well, um, especially if you're busy and you have a lot going on. So it's not necessarily something to worry about in itself, but but it is true that people who have traumatic brain events of, of many types have, have more problems with memory. Um, and some of them are, are completely mysterious. Like if you have, a, have to have a brain surgery, you're really likely to lose memories from like a couple of weeks at least before that. And nobody really knows why that is, but it's probably because memory consolidation is an ongoing process that requires a lot of things like good sleep um, and time. And so that's probably why that happens. Um, but it's also possible that, that systems that you need to form new memories are damaged um, in, the, in the event of having, having something like, a, like an aneurysm or, or a hemorrhage or whatever it is. And so, um, and so that's not all bad news because we know now that the brain is, is much more plastic than we ever thought it was. So we used to think that if you had damage to your brain, that was it and there was no chance of repair. And that's because we don't really grow a whole lot of new neurons once, once the brain is formed um, as an adult, like that's kind of it for the number of neurons overall with a couple of tiny exceptions. Um, but it turns out that our neurons are really good at forming new connections, um, at producing more, uh, like literally forming new connections in terms of branching out in new directions um, and working together as different kinds of ensembles. And so it's possible to try and promote that somehow. Um, and that actually, some of my work was 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 looking into that in the field of memory, um, because uh, I found that there's a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine that's like the less well-known cousin of dopamine and serotonin and all of those. But acetylcholine is really important for this process of plasticity and recovery, um, and we don't yet know how to put it to good use for that. It's a brain's natural mechanism, but we're hoping that one day we can actually find a way to boost it and stimulate it and maybe improve um, things like memory function for people in the future. Awesome, awesome. Yes. Um, Paula, I'm really into true crime right now. Anyone else into true crime? Yes. Yeah? Are y'all watching uh, HBO's uh, The Case Against Adnan Sayed? Okay. I won't, I'm not a spoiler. I won't spoil things. That's not my style. Um, yeah. So, uh, so Serial, it's crazy. 
And if you if you haven't listened to Serial, it's a podcast, and you should unearth yourself from whatever rock you're living under because it's really cool. Um, but anyway, it's it's uh, kind of based around this podcast that unearthed this um, 1998-99 um, murder trial. And it happens around this high school, and there's all these high school kids, and this girl goes missing. And then when she's found, um, all these high school kids have to account for where they were a month ago. And they can't. They, they can't tell you. They don't know. Like, they don't know where they were. And I understand that. I, I, if you ask me where I was February 22nd, I, maybe I killed somebody. I don't know. I can't tell you. Like, <laughs> I have no idea where I was. Well, that's comforting. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's exactly what this question is about, is... is yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, and that's exactly what I wanted to know is like, is can we rely on our memories, especially when it comes to like a murder trial or like a rape trial? Like, can we really bring that to trial and, and trust that someone says that they did something and they didn't do something? No, no. It's, it's, memory is so unreliable. Um, and, and there are people who really have done work on this and tested whether people's memories are reliable or not. Um, and and it, it, they just aren't, and, and that's probably not going to change. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and one of the reasons for it is that as we retrieve our memories they become changeable during that time. So memory, every time you retrieve a memory, it undergoes a process of coming back into, into your conscious experience and then being reconsolidated again afterwards. And that literally requires physical brain changes. So it requires protein formation, formation of new building blocks to lay down the memory again. And so as you're recalling a memory, if you're influenced by anything around you, um, say, for example, somebody asking a question in a particular way, um, like um, one of the studies that was done on this, and I'm going to forget the names of the people who did it, but um, which is bad of me, but there you go, memory's un unreliable. Um, so they, they asked people uh, to watch video footage of a car crash, and then they asked some people what speed they thought the cars were going when they collided. And they asked some people what, what speed the cars were going when they smashed together. Um, and when they used words like smashed, like violent words, people thought the cars were going faster. Um, and so even as that was happening, then that memory gets reconsolidated in such a way that the cars were going faster, and it's true. And we've all experienced this over and over and over again. There's, there's nothing to say our memories are reliable at all. And so it's really difficult to rely on things like eyewitness testimony in these things, because even the slightest thing can influence memory and change it. But we're so sure, like, we're so sure. Okay. Um, that, you know, you, you ask us, like, where we... We can tell you what we're wearing. We can we know we think we know for sure, but it turns out we really don't. Um, 
So I want to open this last up bit. Um, last up bit? That's not a <laughs> sentence. I have a brain injury. I have a pass, okay? <laughs> oh, I just uh, want to say it was Elizabeth Loftus's group that did oh, that Oh, great. Yeah, so I want to open up. Uh, we have a few more minutes, and I want to get some audience questions um, for Paula or I. Um, so go ahead and raise your hands, and we'll pass you a mic. We know you We got one, one over here. <laughs> I would just give you a test. But, anyway, <laughs> but I always have questions, right? Because I am a brain fan. And yes, you only have three more minutes. So I'm going to make it really quickly. Um, I do believe, I believe, literally, I believe that the brain is our God, right? Like everything that we call God is just because we can't understand the brain. So it's just like, it's there. We just don't understand it. You were talking about memory smells. Can you talk more about how we can actually change the past through memory, like with affirmations and things like that? Like, does that shit work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah, that was like memory and smell and affirmations. Um, God, and, religion. And religion. Oh, yeah, right. And God. Uh, so, yeah, I believe that there's so much mystery in the brain and so much of who we are is tied up in the brain. And anyone who's had an incident involving their brain knows how much it can change you um, to have that happen. Um, but, yeah, because these memories are so malleable, because our experiences can be influenced by the way that we think, then things like affirmations, things like cognitive behavioral therapy can work. Um, the trouble is that we don't understand the brain at all. If I gave you that impression, I'm really sorry. Like we have no idea what's going on in the brain most of the time. And so we don't know when they're going to work or how they're going to work. And that's why neuroscientists need to keep doing their thing. Uh, that's like a really lame, like more research needed. But like that's kind so of how continued. it is. We really do need to know. We, so, so sometimes those things work and sometimes they don't. Um, but there are a lot of cases in which we really can influence our own memories. Um, one thing we didn't mention when we were talking about trauma is that is that there are situations in which memories can be really super vivid, and trauma can be one of those situations. Um, and one thing that I don't understand at all, but know to be the case, is that is that sometimes smells can re-evoke a past memory in a way that's like incredibly powerful and like totally out of the blue without even trying. Like I still, yeah, I still, if I smell a particular cologne that a particular ex of mine used to wear, I'm like right back. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I, I don't, I don't know how that happens. That's not helpful at all. Hmm. True. <laughs> yes. and, and also the cells the cells that you use to smell have a direct line to the brain mm -hmm. so you know there's something powerful there oh my god well folks that is our time thank you so much for for listening and and asking your questions this is Mimi and the brain we are number two on the text system so text numero two and thank you one more time, Paula, Dr. Paula Croxen. Thank you, Mimi. Thanks, and everyone. And come find us after the show. We'll love to ask her, answer more questions. Thank you. Today's episode of Mimi and the Brain was written by yours truly, with sound mixing by Jordan Gosparé, music by Lucas Murray Music, and artwork by Joy Spangler. This episode was recorded live at the Much Different Showcase in Brooklyn, New York, and produced by Minister Jazz, with recordings from Michael Innitt. 
If you're in New York City and you're looking for a cool place to podcast and work around other creatives, Much Different will launch their membership program on April 1st, 2019. You can visit www.wearemuchdifferent.com for more information. And on a personal note, if you like my science podcast with the comedic twist, feel free to jump on my Kickstarter for my one-woman show, which will premiere this summer. You can go to www.kickstarter.com slash profile slash get Mimi to fringe or simply type in I'll be okay in the Kickstarter search bar and subscribe to my channel wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you gooey brains later. Um, should we do the end now? Yeah, it's my personal best. Can't do any better than that.